0: Good day, wherever you're listening from. This is Radio Joe saying hello, and I hope everyone's summer is going well. Unfortunately, earlier this week, we were informed that an industry pioneer and mentor to many in the industry, Dr. Phil Moray, had passed away. The good news is we have an excellent interview in the archives with Dr. Moray, and we have recut and remixed it to play it today. So today, in memoriam, we flash back to 12-12-2008 for Cliff's interview with Dr. Phil Moray, episode 106, enjoy. I see-
1: Right, right. Dr. Phil. Something told me you were Dr. Phil before he was Dr. Phil. That's true. Good afternoon, Cliff. All right. Well, let's go back and let's talk about, let's go back into maybe history, ancient history, and let's talk really about your college studies and how did what you studied in college kind of prepare you for what you're doing now?
2: Well, I would say uh, I, I, got, I received a bachelor's in biology from University of Dayton, and you mentioned the PhD from Yale. I'd say a good science background. That's, uh, uh, in my case, uh, lots of physiology, developmental biology, histology, things like that. Okay,
3: Okay, Phil, you were a professor at Texas Tech. What department were you in, and what sort of courses did you teach?
2: um, I was in the Department of Biological Sciences, uh, which at that time included microbiology, zoology, and botany. And I taught anatomy. I taught, uh, of course, general biology courses, uh, developmental biology, plant morphology, things like that, Uh, sort of with an agricultural emphasis, because uh, Lubbock, Texas, where Texas Tech University is, is uh, the the main industry is really agriculture.
3: Did you have any famous students?
2: Well, I don't know that I, uh, uh, I had any really famous students, but one of the infamous students in one of my biology classes was John Hinckley. He didn't stick around too uh, too long uh, uh, in my class. So at least he didn't stick around uh, 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 for the first uh, midterm class. But if, if you'll remember, he's the person uh, uh, involved in the assassination attempt of President Reagan at right. that time.
1: Yeah, with the Jody Foster obsession. Yeah, I remember him well. <laughs> Well, I understand that while you were down in Texas, you got interested in, in cotton dust. What interested you about that?
2: Well, uh, there were a lot of cotton gins, a lot of co- cottonseed oil mills, and, uh, uh, of course, I was in a biology department, and at that time, uh, there was considerable research interest in finding the component of the plant material in harvested cotton that causes brown lung or bisonosis and that meant looking at the leaves, the, the, the bracts, the fruit, the, the cotton lint, and I started to get into gram-negative bacteria, endotoxins, fungi, uh, because all those kinds of microbial contaminants are found in the harvested plant material, and some of that's important when you have dust generation in the textile mill down in downstream.
3: When did you become interested in in occupational health and industrial hygiene.
2: Well, that's sort of a long story, but to make it short, um, I was involved in cotton research at Texas Tech. And uh, about 1975, there was an OSHA rulemaking hearing on uh, Capitol Hill, and I testified uh, 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 on behalf of uh, the cotton growers, Cotton Incorporated, uh, for one and uh, the agricultural interest in uh, West Texas at that time, and uh, became aware of OSHA, American Industrial Hygiene Association. And uh, uh, then I started publishing papers in, at that time, the American Industrial Hygiene Association Journal, and then I learned about the CIH, took the CIH, and uh, that got me into industrial hygiene or occupational health and safety.
1: Speaking of that, what is NIOSH?
2: Uh, NIOSH is, stands for National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, and uh, it uh, uh, sort of, I think in the original way that uh, OSHA and NIOSH were formed in the early 70s, NIOSH is sort of the agency that does the research or the basic science uh, uh, on which uh, OSHA, PELs, permissible Exposure Limits, and uh, uh, regulation should be based. So uh, uh, NIOSH uh, does the research end of things, and they still do that today, and OSHA is the regulatory end of things.
3: What sort of work did you do when you were working at NIOSH?
2: Well, uh, I arrived at NIOSH thinking I would do cotton dust work, and I um, <clears throat> happened to be walking down the hall with a physician by the name of Michael Hogson, Um Who's now at the Veterans Administration. And um, uh, Mike and I were walking down the hall, as I said, and there was this problem in a Tennessee Valley Authority building in Knoxville. And so, uh, and it looked like it was microbial in nature. Uh, and so I was the closest thing to that, a biologist, and Mike was uh, a physician, and we got put on a plane. Next day we were in knoxville looking at the tva building it's sort of a nuclear design building at that time for when tva was building uh, nuclear plants
1: hmm. what sort of stuff did you find there
2: well uh we found uh, lots of uh, microbial slime uh in the drain pans of the air handling unit uh poor maintenance and uh the one thing that stands out in that project uh Uh, is that uh, since there were 400 engineers in the building, it's not their typical office building, uh, a lot of them uh, had uh, moisture reading equipment at their desks, and uh, uh, they uh, had uh, dew point meters, uh, 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 dry bulb temperature meters. And I remember one of the questionnaires that I got back uh, stated something to the effect that uh, the, the dew point temperature and the dry bulb air temperature were identical, and when this occurred, this would be like temperatures in the low 70s, mm-hmm. and they had cloud formation in the building. In other words, it's 100% humidity, and of course, that's why fungi, bacteria, uh, uh, and a lot of other things, including protozoa and nematodes, were in the ventilation system and growing elsewhere in the building. So it was rather, I've never seen anything quite like that with that high humidity <laughs> document. At that time, how did NIOSH classify these problem buildings? Well, uh, in the early 80s, when I, uh, when I was at uh, NIOSH, uh, sort of made a crude distinction between uh, stuffy buildings which would be more the ventilation deficient buildings, and there were a couple of very good engineers in the Cincinnati NIOSH office, and so the stuffy building calls or uh, uh, complaints uh, went to Cincinnati NIOSH for looking at, and in the moldy building complaints went to uh, Morgantown NIOSH where, where I was. So that was the crude beginning. They don't do it that way now, I'm sure, but. In the early days, that's how it was done.
1: Yeah. Besides this TVA
2: building, did you, you know, do
1: any other interesting field work while you are at NIOSH?
2: Well, I can remember one very interesting building, and that's the Hubert Humphrey Building on the Mall mm-hmm. in uh, Washington, D.C. It overlooks the Capitol. And uh, uh, Mike Hodgson and I uh, investigated that building. I think that the TVA building was the first building I did. The mm-hmm. Hubert Humphrey Building was the second building. And, and that, that's an interesting building in that when it was built, uh, uh, a cafeteria was on, put on the eighth floor with a beautiful view overlooking the Capitol in D.C. And uh, however, the uh, plumbing for the grease traps wasn't done right. And uh, they, they, uh, the, the building uh, had back, backed up dishwater uh, effluent. Uh, flowing through the return air plenums and down to uh, other floors in the building because of the uh, uh, problems with the uh, grease buildup in the in the traps, and uh, there were people that had uh, acute hypersensitivity pneumonitis. They were actually pretty sick, and uh, uh, um, that was documented. We published a paper in a in 1985. Uh, um, which is called Pulmonary Disease Associated with Cafeteria Flooding. And uh, that, that was just very interesting because it took, I remember it took the government uh, almost uh, uh, 12 or 14 months to uh, fix the plumbing problem, you know, which should have been fixed immediately. But that's the way it goes sometimes.
1: I understand that you've been associated with, um, I guess what I'm going to call a term of industry nomenclature, and that term is a 1,000 CFUs per cubic meter. Uh, What can you tell us about that?
2: Well, when when I was at NIOSH, I published a review paper in 1984 in the Annals of the uh, the ACGIH. And uh, uh, having reviewed the literature and having seen a few of these early buildings, like the TVA building and the Humphrey building, Uh, I I published something to the effect that when you have more than about 1,000 viable particles per cubic meter, and I'm going to read this sentence, that indicates that the indoor environment may be in need of investigation and improvement, and I said, however, this is not to say that the air is unsafe or hazardous. Illness in the workplace can only be documented by medical or epidemiologic studies, Mm -hmm. That, those three sentences were, uh, I don't know how many times I've seen references to uh, the, the Fillmore thousand colony-forming units per cubic meter guide or threshold or permissible exposure limit. I've seen that in litigation for the last 20 years, and so... So that that's a rather famous three sentences that's led to a, uh, unfortunately a lot of confusion. And if you read what I said, if you have high levels, you know you investigate further. But medical things have to be looked at either clinically or epidemiologically. So, so anyhow, that that, that stimulated a lot of work and controversy out there. So like separation
1: of church and state, there's a separation between what those findings are and uh, someone's uh, documented health condition, I guess.
2: Yeah. You you can't go from the environmental microbiology directly to health uh, findings. The the environmental microbiology can be quite useful, however, to the physician in in deciding uh, various aspects of the clinical aspects of the case
1: um you know you're really one of the preeminent people and really one of the pioneers really you know in this field of I guess what we call you know microbial forensic investigation of, of buildings um, which industry peers do you commonly see to eye, eye to eye with and are there any industry peers with whom you vehemently disagree? And if you would want to name names, you certainly can't
2: well, I, I think there's pretty broad, cons- I don't really see major disagreements um, mm-hmm. uh, among what I consider peers. We may have minor disagreements like is this sampling method better than that sampling method or how to interpret uh, uh, some of the data, but I think there's, there's pretty broad consensus in like the, AC, the ACGIH document guide, uh, guidelines, the uh, American Industrial Hygiene Guidelines, the IICRC Uh, standard, uh, et cetera. I I think where I find the disagreements are when you get people that sort of aren't in the field and uh, like uh, they find uh, half a square foot of visible mold somewhere and uh, uh, proceed to want to uh, um, uh, do a major mold remediation based on a trivial amount of visible mold, uh, things like that. So I I find the disagreements – not so much with people I consider the peers in the field, but uh, with the uh, people who maybe are coming into the field or are unaware of the literature for the last 20 years. Gotcha. Well, I guess since NIOSH, you've been
1: investigating buildings and and conducting sampling. Have your views for sampling for indoor microbiological contaminants changed?
2: I would say uh, that there's... Uh, Some change, I would say, less less need for microbial sampling uh, during the remediation phase. However, during the assessment phase where you're actually trying to diagnose a building and figure out if there's an exposure problem or a mold problem, I'd say the sampling is very important there. So uh, more emphasis on sampling should be given during the assessment, less during the remediation
3: what sampling methods and equipment do you prefer?
2: Well, I, I like uh, uh, to follow uh, uh, the personal cloud. That's uh, There's been several papers in the literature in the last 10 years dealing with when, when people are walking around. There's sort of a little dust cloud around them, the breathing zone. So I like portable types of samplers, uh, uh, like uh, one that I've always used. Uh, since NIOSH days uh, is the Burkhard uh, Sport trap. And, and then for culture uh, air sampling, I like samplers that are portable, like uh, the uh, PBI, SAS or the RCS uh, types of samplers you can walk around with. Um, and uh, I would say tape sampling. It's the very simplest, easiest type of sampling. So, sometimes people forget the easy stuff. I think that's very good. And then I like the dust collection, uh, like by the uh, inserts that go in the nozzles of vacuum cleaners. I think those are sort of the things I rely on. you sort of practical stuff.
1: Do you have an opinion on the role of physical inspection of a building as opposed to sampling of a building? Uh,
2: Physical inspection is much more important than sampling that's you, you you do the inspection first if you don't have any resources or wherewithal to do sampling uh, by all means do physical inspection uh, because uh, if you see a lot of mold for example like uh, 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 dozens of square feet or hundreds of square feet of visible mold you really don't know need to do sampling to get on with remediation
1: how important
2: is is the comparison between
1: the interior mold counts within a building to the mold counts
2: that are outdoors? I, I think it's it's not so much the concentrations, it's the kinds. And uh, so, in in back in the early uh, ACGIH bioaerosol committee days, uh, we came up with the term rank order assessment, and that's that's embedded in the 1999 bioaerosols ACGIH book. Uh, You look at the kinds of uh, rank order from most prominent to least prominent uh, molds in the outdoor air uh, and compare that to the indoor air. And you can do the same with uh, bacteria, uh, uh, outdoor versus indoor. So I I think the kinds are uh, more important than the concentration.
1: You know, when you repair or prepare reports for a client and you, you find all these different organisms in a building, would your report typically include the potential adverse health effects that occupants might uh,
2: encounter with that? I, our- I, I would not do that because I don't have an MD after my name. If I had a, a medical degree after my name, I might put that in. if if I talked about adverse health effects, it would be very general in terms of the epidemiology literature. And and I found in litigation that those environmental consultants that uh, attach all these uh, adverse health effect uh, uh, claims relative to specific organisms, they can get in trouble in the sense that, uh, let's say you find Cladosporium cladosporites or Cladosporium herbarum, in the indoor air. Uh, well, <clears throat> if you go to the medical literature uh, in hospitals, yes, there are cases where that mold can cause a infection of a, a, a surgical incision, but that's not, that, that has nothing to do with uh, the uh, in, indoor environmental assessment in, in a building. Uh, so I find people get in trouble when they, they, they go to the medical mycology literature and, and make these broad associations between an organism you find in environmental sampling and an adverse health effect that may occur in a surgery, uh, uh, you know, at some time in the past 50 years.
1: Yeah, that's a very important point, and I'm glad
2: that you made it.
3: What is a forensic microbial investigation of a built environment?
2: Well, that's sort of uh, if you're trying to determine. Uh, for uh, you, and I like to think of specific buildings. Uh, and, and if you're tr- uh, if you're trying to determine, like, is there a lot of hidden mold or concealed mold in the building envelope of the building, uh, and is the if there is hidden mold, is it uh, uh, affecting adversely the I, IAQ in the building, and I can. Uh, and, and then, then uh, if, if, if you find hidden mold and you find it's a set, uh, affecting the IQ, of course, from a fix-up point of view, why is the mold growing? You know, wh- wh- where's the moisture coming from? Where's the construction defect? So, so th- those, are, those are very interesting uh, types of studies. And I've, I've been involved in a number of them over the years, a lot, a lot of them in California.
1: You know, you'd mentioned different things such as slime and amoeba and and so on and so forth. Do you feel that the emphasis placed on mold as a cause of indoor environmental problems is appropriate, understated,
2: or overblown? I'd say it's appropriate. It's about where it should be, but there probably should be uh, more emphasis on, uh, uh, like, mold components, like glue cans, like... uh, Ultrafine uh, particulate from uh, spores and uh, hyphal, fra- hyphal fragments, things of that nature. Uh, there should be more emphasis on actinomycetes and uh, uh, the uh, components of biofilms, uh, things uh, like that. Uh, protozoa uh, that, back uh, the TVA building in the, uh, that I talked about. My first building investigation, lots of protozoans in the drain pans, yet. You don't see much research or publication uh, on on potential effects on people. You
1: know, what's your experience been with contaminants commonly found in heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems? Uh, you know, within air streams or on duct liners.
2: Well, uh, uh, when you have dirt accumulate in ventilation systems, uh, the, the dirt or the dust. Has nutrient, has organic nutrient on which molds can grow. If if the environment gets moist, and of course in air conditioning you're going to have a moist environment. Uh, the smooth, non-porous materials are uh, potentially very cleanable by duct cleaning or by just elbow grease. Uh, the fibrous surfaces, uh, the so-called duct liners, they're rough, more dirt accumulates, and when mold hyphae, the little filaments. Grow in and among the fibrous insulation materials of duck liner, then you can't clean it, and and as the New York City guidelines say, you know you you discard the the moldy uh, material if you can't clean it. Okay. So so that that's a very important area, and I might mention, I, I saw that problem 20 years ago in Florida, a lot of Florida buildings, and it's, it's sort of appalling to. Uh, year 2008, go back to Florida and Gulf Coast areas and see that same type of problem again. In other words, people don't learn. They don't learn very readily. All right. I think
1: what we're going to do at this point is it's halftime. We'd like to thank our sponsors.
4: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, we use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com.
4: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or Restoration and Abatement Contractors Shop. Visit them at Johndon.com.
0: CleanFacts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
4: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services
1: and dr phil we at iq radio thank you for picking up the phone and, and talking to us you know you told us about you know the tva building and hubert humphrey and you know those are pretty prominent buildings uh anything more recent have you done any investigated any more prominent buildings more recently
2: well uh i've had a number of projects in honolulu at, uh, I'd rather not mention the names, That's but a, yeah, uh, very, sure. very famous hotels. Okay. And, uh, um, uh, they're, they're always interesting. Hotels are just intrinsically interesting buildings or interesting types of buildings to be involved in.
1: I think you've also been involved in some, uh, I guess, courthouses, I suspect a couple of those, no?
2: Oh yeah. Well, the, the, the original Polk County courthouse and Martin County courthouse, uh, Projects in uh, Florida. Uh, and they're, they're always, they're, they were in hindsight just very interesting, not only from the massive amounts of water damage and mold, but the fact that in, in a courthouse, unlike any other type of building, it's the chief judge who makes the decisions. And if the chief judge says you vacate, you vacate. If the chief, chief judge says you do such and such, you do such and such. And uh, so uh, th- th- those are just very interesting buildings.
3: Have you ever worked for celebrities and do you have any interesting war stories?
2: Um, not really for celebrities I was involved in the Ed McMahon house uh, never met uh, uh, mr. McMahon but I was involved in uh, providing opinion on uh, what went wrong and what should have been a very simple mold remediation uh, took a long time uh, too long in uh, to uh, to accomplish. Um, uh, I, I would say that uh, the, uh, the the uh, hotels and uh, are, are probably the ones that I've been most uh, found most interesting, like leaky shower pans and uh, uh, mold on furniture in a few hotels uh, that, that got to the point where people couldn't, they, the hotels couldn't rent the rooms. So. Uh, uh, not too many celebrities a lot a lot of celebrity buildings though
1: what about uh prominent mold cases besides ed mcMahon any any other of those
2: uh not that I can think of i um, uh I, I do about half and half uh defense and uh half plaintiff uh when I'm involved in litigation You're realistically any consultant has to consider that anything they do is subject to litigation but uh um Uh, I I find the litigation cases quite interesting, like on the defense side, it always amazes me how uh, some people, when they find a square inch of mold or a square foot of mold, uh, think the sky is falling in and and sue everybody. And uh, then uh, when you're on the plaintiff's side, Uh, Those are quite interesting because it's it's up to you to prove there's an exposure problem or document that there's a moisture problem, a mold problem. And uh, it sort of really makes you think of the basic building science when you're involved in these litigations.
1: You know, I understand that you're reviewing the role of botany uh, in buildings. Can you opine on potted plants, roof gardens, and something known as a living wall?
2: Yes, I'm, in, I'm a member of, of the ASHRAE Advanced IQ Design Committee, and I've been assigned the microbial topics like uh, uh, roof, uh, roof gardens and vertical gardens and things like that. And, uh, and uh, Anyhow, th- th- that's been a very interesting area where people put uh, uh, vegetative gardens, uh, maybe up to a meter thick of soil on the roof of a building, and the uh, kinds of things that one has to look out for would be how good is the waterproofing membrane that the waterproofing membrane must last 25 years and if you cut corners you may uh, and you have a garden up there on top of everything then what happens when you have a roof leak and things things like that and then, then there the whole issue of plants indoors potted plants there's there's a fair amount of recent literature, mostly from Australia, which uh, shows that the microorganisms at the soil-root interface actually um, uh, 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 devour or uh, um, uh, uh, suck up and get rid of volatile organic compounds in room air. And while that that's, that that research uh, is uh, needs to be followed up and become more thorough, there's also an, another important body of research that indicates that uh, uh, the decaying vegetation uh, uh, in potted plants, and actually the soil itself can be harbor many pathogenic uh, molds like Aspergillus fumigatus, so you have to sort of balance the potential for what potted plants may do in terms of VOC reduction verse, versus the risk of adding a lot of unwanted mold spores into the uh, air. This is well known in hospitals about the mold spores causing infection, but if you have lots of potted plants in buildings, especially if the maintenance is poor, then you may have a mold problem.
1: You know, can you tell our listeners what a living wall is?
2: Uh, a living wall uh, is where you have vegetation uh, on an interior wall, like like a vertical garden. It might be ferns and various herbaceous plants. And there's a uh, and, and one one of the one of the concepts that's out there in the literature is that if you pass ventilation air through this living wall, you'll actually uh, uh, get rid of some indoor air contaminants like the OCs. Uh, but remember, the work is just beginning in this area, and, and I worry that when you pass, like, ventilation air uh, through a living wall, what kinds of microbes are you going to be picking up or microbial products. And so far the research is uh, 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 inconclusive on that, but I, I suspect... Uh, uh, there will be some, some problems that uh, will be very interesting in the future. Lawyers will love it.
3: Do you notice any trends in how green buildings affect the comfort level of building occupants?
2: Um, uh, not, not really. There's the general um, um, uh, concepts out there that uh, uh, you, 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 re, you, you save energy. Uh, you you uh, allow for better stormwater runoff. Uh, if you have a lot of trees or shrubs on top of the building, you you uh, they particularly pick up some of the uh, uh, particulate air contaminants from the air and actually do a cleansing of the air. But as far as in the indoor air, I would say uh, uh, other than comfort, uh, uh, the presence of a few well-maintained potted plants. I think people think that's aesthetically uh, beneficial. Uh, I'm not too sure uh, that having a lot of enormous number of plants or certainly over-watered plants uh, is, is very good for the indoor environment. I probably didn't quite answer your question, but uh, I, I think the... the, the The jury's still out on the comfort associated with greening of buildings.
1: You know, you've just written so much, so many articles, and you've written two books. Is there something that you consider your best work, or is there a work
2: or works that you're most proud of? Well, uh, in 2003, uh, I published a paper with uh, 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 two uh, co-authors on a uh, dormitory building in Southern California affected by El Nino rains. And uh, um, this was one of these forensic studies mm-hmm. uh, where we did lots and lots of air sampling and then destructive inspection of the envelope uh, to see where the mold was, the hidden mold was. And uh, this paper was published in International Biodegradation uh, uh, in 2003. And basically what we found was that the... Uh, the uh, Uh, the quality of the indoor air in terms of airborne penicillium and aspergillus species was highly degraded in the rooms that historically were very wet from the El Nino rains and the the air quality was very different from the outdoor air and uh, uh, those rooms when, when the walls were disassembled there was lots of visible mold. Now there were other rooms in that same dormitory where the uh, uh, rain didn't, uh, for whatever reason, didn't get into the envelope. And the air quality, the, the, the kinds of molds, concentrations of molds in the indoor air in those dry rooms look like outdoor mold uh, concentrations and kinds. And, uh, and, and so that's probably been the best forensic uh, uh, study that, uh, that I've ever done.
1: In your experience, have you run into Legionella at all?
2: Well, uh, as part of my uh, membership on the Sashray Advanced IQ Design Committee, I've written a section on uh, uh, Legionella. And, and you know there's still four to 5,000 mortalities in the USA every year because of Legionnaires' disease. And many of them occur in the healthcare setting, but many of them occur in uh Um, non-health care settings, especially residential. And I would say in in the design area that, uh, at least for commercial buildings like hotels, uh, uh, that uh, one needs to really look at the design of the cooling tower and the hot and cold water service system in terms of Emergency disinfection. Should you ever have a Legionella problem or a Legionnaires' disease problem, you know, can you disinfect the hot water system? And and, uh, uh, there's a lot of good information from ASHRAE, also from OSHA, also from the World Health Organization on that. But I'm surprised that after uh, see, W Stratford was 1976. Here we are, 2008, and we still have that kind of statistic, mortality statistic in the USA scary
3: can you comment on the use of ultraviolet light in the hvac systems
2: well that that's an interesting new area um and uh you upper room air uvi uh, ultraviolet light germicidal disinfection or radiation has been used for many years like in hospitals to to kill uh, uh mycobacterium tuberculosis you know the agent that causes tuberculosis tuberculosis as well as well as it probably kills influenza viruses and things like that so that that use is well established what is occurring now uh, partly uh, uh, due to the bioterrorism threats and partly due to uh, uh, just concern about indoor environmental quality is the the installation of Ultraviolet germicidal uh, uh, irradiation systems and air handling units of HVAC systems, and, and it's certain that those the ultraviolet light kills bacteria and molds that are on the irradiated surfaces, like drain pans and uh, cooling coils and things like that. Um, uh, but you have to watch, uh, in the sense that duct liner, plastic piping. Things like that are very susceptible to photo deterioration by UV uh, light. And uh, also, uh, as far as affecting the quality of the air in the office or the workplace where people breathe that air, so far the results are inconclusive. In other words, that uh, the UVGI in the air handling unit isn't. Lower, is not lowering the levels of bacteria and fungi in the workplace area that people breathe. So that's, that's an area of intense uh, uh, research right now.
1: We actually, in anticipation of your visit on our show today, we actually had some uh, questions that were texted in, and I, I'd like to ask you two of them. Uh, sure. It's really a two-part question. Uh, do you agree with the preface statement by Dr. Miller in the Green Book that says, quote, As a public health issue, mold has been treated in a regulatory sense as an avoidable contaminant that should be reduced to as low as reasonably achievable.
2: I I think that's a reasonable uh, statement. Uh, And and I would uh, interpret into that you're trying to avoid the conditions that lead to uh, visible mold growth. Uh, And uh, uh, this helps avoid uh, exposure.
1: Okay. There was a follow-up to that. How would you just interpret the statement as one of the authors in terms of its application?
2: How would I interpret the statement? Right. Um, uh, not too sure what you mean uh, there.
1: Uh, I, I didn't write the question. I was just reading it. <laughs> I, I guess uh, the follow-up question of the first one was how, how would you interpret this statement and I guess as one of the authors, I guess in terms of applying it, like where it might be applicable. Why don't we go there?
2: Well, well uh, the the uh, applicability in a regulatory sense, essentially everyone's heard of the New York City guidelines, the three editions. Right. And, 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 and this becomes de facto regulation like in litigation that you follow the New York City guidelines. So uh, I, I think there... Uh, those uh, guidelines, New York City guidelines uh, and the others that are out there uh, are are quite reasonable. Uh, They all talk about uh, uh, control of moisture, preventing mold growth, uh, and uh, uh, proper means and methods to eliminate the mold growth if you're unfortunate to have that uh, that mold growth. So I I don't have any problems with the, the, the preface in the Green Book.
1: Okay. Uh, you know, you just brought up uh, IICRC S520 and, and size. And what my question is, is that in IICRC, uh, the mold standard S520, the size of the microbial contaminated area doesn't matter, while in other documents such as the New York City guidelines it does. Do you feel that the size of the visually fungal contaminated area should be the driver to determine remediated, uh, remediation methods and
2: our protocols? I would say yes, but uh, tempered with a large amount of professional judgment. Okay. Uh, ten square foot of visible or ten square foot of visible mold in a, a, lo- a location in building A is not necessarily the same uh, as in building B, in, in the sense of the means and methods that that's going to be used to physically remove that mold. So uh, the ICRC uh, is not unique in in not having square footage. Areas. If you look back to Chapter 15 in the ACGIH BioAerosols book, we purposefully kept away from square footage and, and used uh, uh, terms like extensive or uh, th- things like that. Uh, and, and this forces the remediator or the industrial hygienist or uh, uh, competent individual who's overseeing the remediation to use some professional judgment in terms of dust suppression, dust control, um, uh, uh, and, and I think that's I think that's wise for the IICRC to uh, keep away from the numbers. You know, let's emphasize the professional judgment and the, the proper means and methods of dust suppression.
3: From an industrial hygiene perspective, do you feel that mold remediation workers who often wear excessive equipment place them at risk from heat stress?
2: Uh, yes, uh, I've seen that in Florida uh, both in the Martin County and the Polk County courthouse remediation, that uh, heat stress is important in, 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 those areas. And what I would say is one, one follows the ACGIH, uh, uh, guidelines and the NIOSH guidelines and the OSHA guidelines in, uh, uh in terms of prevention of, uh, heat stress and, uh, that, that kind of thing. In other words, I'm gonna allow enough breaks and, uh, You don't want to compromise personal protective equipment, but on the other hand, you don't want to have people affected with heat stress.
1: You know, Phil, you're really a legend in the industry and a go-to guy in microbial investigation. Can you Mm -hmm. offer a few professional tips or trade secrets to listeners who really want to get better at the craft?
2: Well, um, I would say if you're involved in, like, exposure-type investigations, in other words, you're you're trying to document... uh, from an assessment point of view that people are being exposed. Don't use the area samplers. You use, use either personal samplers or uh, semi uh, uh, samplers where you walk around with the sampler in hand and simulate normal occupant activities. So I, I think following that personal cloud of dust is important. And, and then I would say, it's not a trade secret really or a big secret, it's physical inspection. Uh, you know photographs uh, uh, a ruler uh, how much mold there is document how much mold there is uh, use tape slides they, they stick around they they, they stay forever in, in their in their uh, slide box uh, if you need them um, uh, so I think uh, many times the trade secrets are uh, simple things and I'll give you an example all this recent uh, emphasis on chlorine dioxide mm-hmm. uh, as uh Sort of a means uh, to uh, uh, get around physical removal of the mold. Well, there there was a paper published by Nancy Burton and others earlier this year. And and the most interesting evidence is that, in my opinion, is that after uh, the uh, chlorine dioxide exposure, uh, you can take, uh, take samples and you still find the hyphae in the fruiting structures. Well, it didn't get the, the, the treatment didn't get rid of the physical get rid of the mold and and that that's that's a, a real cheap inexpensive simple type of sampling device
1: that would be you meant by that gaseous chlorine dioxide
2: correct yes the gaseous or uh, yes where you tent the building right. gotcha. <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, uh, to me that's the easiest way to document uh, you know you want to always in these things keep an open mind you know, new technology maybe there's better easier and cheaper ways to do things but the first question that when i heard about that was does that tenting with the gaseous chlorine dioxide physically get rid of the mold hyphae and mycelium and things like that i'd be thrilled if it does but the burden paper suggested it didn't right and i think it made common sense
1: that it didn't if you can hang on another couple of minutes we're going to go to what we call a roundup now and we're all just all going to Ask your questions, and you can ask us questions, and we just close it out. Okay.
0: Okay. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up. Move them on, move them on, hit them up. Raw high. Cut them out. Ride them in, ride them in. Let them out. Cut them out. Ride on.
1: I think we can go to Glenn first. Glenn, uh, any questions or comments uh, for the good doctor?
5: Well, I do. The last uh, uh, part of the conversation there, when we were talking about chlorine dioxide, made me think of another substance which is often used uh, or wanting to be used in mold remediation. There's a lot of people who uh, say it's uh, perhaps not very valuable, and that's ozone. So I'd love to hear. Dr. Mori's comments on the use of ozone in microbial contamination remediation, if it has a place at all. Uh,
2: I don't really know. I, I, I have uh, I've seen ozone used, like uh, in buildings that have a lot of porous insulation, allegedly to get rid of the uh, mold. I don't think it was successful. I'd like this to be moldy duct liner, and moldy f- fireproofing. Uh, I, I would worry that. It, Uh, One thing about ozone is it can react with uh, uh, many uh, double-bonded VOCs to produce aldehydes. So I I would have that uh, concern. And ozone is pretty reactive on everything else in the building. So I I would have that concern.
3: Thank you.
5: I'll pass on to someone else
1: and come back to me if there's still time. Ladies next.
3: I have a question for you, Phil. From a former student's perspective, uh, What sort of classes would you recommend for a young student very interested in mold investigation?
2: Uh, I would recommend, well, a good microbiology course. Okay. Uh, And and then if you're at a uh, a university where you have a mycologist, someone that studies fungi, and and that's likely going to be at your land-grant universities, Mm -hmm. like uh, Texas A&M in Texas, and uh, uh, Texas Tech would have a uh, mycologist. You you would want to take a good mycology course, maybe even a plant pathology course, and then of course it has. It's always good to know something about chemistry because that's so involved in things. And since we we have uh, since the days I was in school, the field has changed a lot. Uh, You want a good molecular biology course
3: because
2: a lot of the, the newer techniques are PCR based or nucleic acid based.
3: Thanks for that.
1: Hey Glenn, we can go back if you want another one.
5: Well, I, 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 you mentioned the Polk County courthouse, and Dr. Morey, I think that's around the time that I started working in the IAQ industry. I think it was around the early nineteen nineties, I guess. Yes. And um, I just remember it being something that was really the, one of the first, uh, you know, moldy buildings that made kind of national headlines and, and really caught people's attention. There's just a lot of, I guess, controversy and discussion about it. And I, I wanted to come back to that, ask you, you know, how did that particular um, case, you know, affect the industry? What what evolved out of that? Because I, I, I think there were some, some kind of unique things that happened there that may have led towards the development of, of, of better standards or protocols down the road. Um,
2: well, that was certainly a, a learning experience. Um, you know, that, that building cost $45 million to fix and was a $35 million initial construction. Uh, and... Uh, one could see not only th- that building had the equivalent. I remember the court case had the equivalent of four NFL football playing field surface areas of visible mold. Wow, twenty thousand meters square. Wow, <laughs> and I've never seen that much in a building, uh, but uh, I, I could I could see like the problems in the building envelope, uh, the different kinds of insulations uh, are being used, and sometimes when you took off the initial wallboard. Uh, you could see right through to the brick on the outside. In other words, there was nothing there. The block didn't didn't go up. uh, There were all sorts of structural problems. And and it was pretty obvious, I think, uh, that uh, uh, after a little bit of time in a building like that, that you needed a real good team. You you needed a a biologist. You needed an industrial hygienist. But you needed a lot of good uh, building engineers to figure out, what was the problem? The HVAC engineers and that building had about all the problems that you can imagine.
5: It must have with that amount of mold.
2: That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. I actually had a question for you guys sure. about the IICRC. Uh, one of the things that always has confused me is the term normal fungal ecology. Uh, that's that's your condition one. Right. And you know I um, I. I think it would be really excellent to come up with about 20 examples, you know, collectively from the committee uh, of, of what, what is normal fungal ecology. Uh, that, 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 that would help uh, sort of level the playing field because my, my view of normal fungal ecology might be different than somebody else's.
1: Well, speaking of that, I mean, they actually have three conditions. You know, they have this normal fungal ecology, and then they have uh, this visible mold, which is the three, and then the one in the middle is this elevated one, which is right. the two. And that was the one that always bothered me in terms of you couldn't really see it, so how could you tell with you know without testing and, and, and sampling? If I'm not mistaken, I think normal fungal ecology probably is a term – uh, originated with Dr. Gene Cole, but what I'll do is I'll find out, and I will uh, send those comments to the uh, to the standards people because I think that they're very valid, and I think it confuses me and it confuses others as well.
5: It, well, I it's think- really the same question that Don Weeks uh, and we discussed about uh, five or six weeks ago when right. when Don was on the show and we were talking about how the Green Book addressed "quote unquote" normal fungal ecology, and he he asked the same question: Well, what is that?
2: Yes, I think it's always good in the standard to have some examples that have to be well thought out, but that would help advance the field because I'm sure we're having this discussion and I'm sure that a lot of other people have that discussion from time to time.
1: Yeah, they do. Okay, we have two final questions for the guests. First of all, Dr. Moore, is there anything that you would like to add or any comment, any question that you wanted us to ask that we didn't? Uh, you know, any final comment from you?
2: Uh, no, I think uh, uh, I'll just follow up on a comment that uh, I made uh, uh, earlier, and that's uh, uh, in, in this area, that's the, the, uh, I, I find that people are neglecting the, the physical inspection, and it's sort of like the question of postage stamp surface area of visible mold versus the NFL football playing field, and, and it's, it just amazes me from time, as, uh, time to time as I see reports that people don't document if it's a square inch, a square foot, a square yard, or uh, a football field of a visible mold. So that, that's sort of, uh, I would say, very important area for people to think about. For uh, our audience
1: who might be interested in uh, utilizing your services, how could they best contact
2: you? Uh, contact me at uh, Mori at... Environ, Environ, E N V I R O N C O R P dot com, or uh, I'm always available by phone at 717 337 2324.
1: Oh, we'd like to thank t- uh, today's guest, Dr. Phil Mori. I'd also like to thank the wingman, Chris Boizel, our guest host, Environmental Annie Ann Koalecki, and our IQ Newsman, Glenn Fellman. We also send our best wishes for continued, speedy, and complete recovery uh, to Dr. Wow from his knee surgery, uh, and most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.